the Anesthesia Podcast. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Anesthesia Journal Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the December 2023 issue, which is online today. This issue is really exciting because it's the first to contain papers reporting results from NEP7. This will obviously all be dealt with separately. We've got three high-quality video interviews with the authors, which will be, then be turning into podcasts as well. So instead of talking about the NAP7 papers today, we're actually going to focus on some of the other papers in the issue. And there's actually quite a lot to choose from. We've got papers on prehabilitation, pain assessment, dexmedetomidine, and dexamethasone, to name but a few. And joining me today, all the way from sunny Sheffield this time, instead of California, is one of our journal fellows, Dr. Paul Bramley. So welcome, Paul, and it's really great to have you with us. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me on. I have to say, it's not very sunny in Sheffield this morning. Nor is it in Manchester. <laughs> when I first met you, it was nearly a year ago, um, and we were having dinner in London at Winter Scientific Meeting, and I was sort of asking you a few questions about your background and, and how you got into all this, but one of the things I found really interesting when we were speaking was about how you got into the specialty of anesthesia. So can you just tell us tell us a little bit about that, Paul? Yes, of course. Um, so, I mean, like all of these things, you often have a vague interest in something before you get more involved. And I had a kind of vague interest in anesthesia when I was at medical school. Um, but the, I think the specific trigger that we're talking about is um, when I did a taste day in anaesthetics in my uh, foundation years, I spent the day with an anaesthetist in theatre who was reading Anesthesia, the journal, which I hadn't heard of before. And we chatted a bit about the fact that um, I had a background in statistics. And he kind of turned to me and handed me a paper that John Carlyle, one of the editors, had written about methods to detect false data in trials and said, can you explain it to me? So I kind of had a quick read through and I thought it was really interesting. And I tried to explain it to him. And he said, okay, well, now you have to come and explain it to the department. So he absolutely insisted that I went and uh, explained it at an um, anaesthetic department meeting. And uh, that was the first bit of evidence on my anaesthetic application portfolio. So between kind of uh, enjoying the clinical side, but also really enjoying the kind of meta research side and being drawn into that, that's kind of, kind of shaped the rest of my career, really. So this so far. Is a paper that you read in the journal Anesthesia written by John Carlyle, and now here you are as trainee fellow, and I think John was your uh, supervisor for the first uh, few months with us. And now you're actually working on projects with, with him, which is which is an incredible story. It's been nice, yeah, and John certainly doesn't disappoint. <laughs> yes, we always say don't don't meet your heroes in real life, and I think that's what John said when uh, when I told him this story. And uh, but yeah, John's not disappointed. I'm sure he's he's amazing. Um, how are you finding the fellowship and, and what have you been up to and, and what have you got planned? So I, I've have been having a fantastic time with the fellowship. Um, so there's uh, uh, kind of there's a few different aspects to it, which is kind of the nature of the fellowship. Um, I've been uh, working with people doing review work and then helping editing articles as well as um, I've written an editorial, but doing some project work, actually, as you said, expanding on some of the uh, false data detection work that John kind of got started and really has led on uh, in anesthesia. So um, no, it's been absolutely fantastic. And I, I mean, I would say that given that I'm chatting to you about it, but I really would suggest that anyone applies because uh, it's I've learned a huge amount about the kind of research itself, about the research landscape in anesthesia and academic publishing and massively improved my academic writing and editing. Um, and I think the really special thing about the fellowship actually is that um, you feel absolutely able to contribute as a fellow. It's not, you're not seen as a kind of junior member of the team. You're absolutely able to contribute and uh, get involved. 
with a very welcoming team. Well, that's amazing. And that very much mirrors uh, my, my experience um, from uh, a few years ago as well. Um, so it's really great to hear. You've picked three papers from the issue to discuss. Um, and we'll start with the first one, which is a prospective observational study uh, from Goodman et al. And they looked at the level of agreement between the numerical rating scale and the visual analog scale for assessing pain intensity in adults with chronic pain. And we're always hearing about pain scores and um, and they're often used as outcomes, and, and we've had lots of opinion pieces about how these pain scores should be used and whether, which one's best and, and all sorts of other things. But this is fascinating because it was a, essentially a secondary analysis of a, a study which was called the Interval Study, and that looked at heart rate variability. And they've done something really clever, which is to take that data from the study and to find um, answers within that data about other questions. And they looked at two different ways of measuring pain, as we mentioned, and included quite a lot of patients with chronic pain, 366. Um, so it's a really good piece of work, and I'd recommend anyone uh, to go and, and read that paper. And I certainly found it really interesting. But why did you pick this paper in particular, Paul, and what did you take away from it? As I've kind of touched on already, I've got a bit of an interest in research methods, and particularly with regards to evidence synthesis. And I think this paper has a particular bearing on that. So as, as you've said, they kind of set out to establish whether the visual analog scale and the numerical rating scale, kind of VAS and NRS as people call them, have good agreement in chronic pain patients as a kind of secondary analysis of this trial. And we kind of assume in general practice, in kind of general clinical practice, that they are equivalent, that we the VAS is just an 100-point scale and the numerical rating scale, as it's normally defined as kind of 0 to 10, is just a kind of tenth of that. And the importance of that is when you are converting between scales, either for the same patients or actually between patients. And that's really, really important in meta-analysis. So if you were taking two different studies, one of which looks at VAS and the other one looks at NRS, um, and you normally you couldn't wouldn't really think about it. You'd just divide the VAS score by 10 and then say that they're comparable. And in acute pain, that seems to be true. But the headline result from this, I mean, this paper actually had lots of different interesting results, but the headline result for me is that it probably isn't as simple in chronic pain patients as dividing the VAS score by 10 and then assuming that's equivalent to the numerical rating scale, which has kind of big implications for meta-analysis and evidence synthesis in chronic pain patients. Um, the authors, I mean, they hypothesize about why this might be and it they think that there might be the effect of temporal changes in chronic pain on an effective component but i think the headline takeaway is that they might not be equivalent measures that's a fascinating conclusion isn't it which i'll just go over again so pain intensity ratings for average current minimal and maximal pain on the numerical scale do not correspond to the reporting of the visual analog scale. And that is despite the fact that both scales are collecting very similar information from very similar patients. And I, I, I can't really explain the reason for that, but it's, it's a really interesting finding that that's comes out of this trial. A couple of things in, in, the, in terms of methods were the use of um, concepts of exploratory and confirmatory factor analysis. Um, did, did you ever find any other interesting methods or statistics that were used in this paper? So there's actually a lot of, um, I mean, I suppose interesting is in the eye of the beholder, but there's lots of uh, interesting statistical methods um, in this paper that are more common in the psychology literature. So in anaesthetics, in the anaesthetic literature, we're often looking at comparisons of interventions and there's a kind of set of tests that we're quite comfortable with and we use quite commonly. Whereas there's some methods here that are more used in kind of exploration of data and deriving metrics and 
as you mentioned, kind of exploratory and confirmatory factor analysis are part of that. And actually, I think it's probably worth taking um, a moment to explain what I mean by that, which is that um, kind of factor analysis assumes that some variables can be observed. So in this case, it would be the numerical rating scale or the va uh, visual analog scale. You can actually record those, but there might be a so-called latent variable, so an underlying variable which contributes or kind of explains those variables. And I think people would have intuitively understand that it's probably there's probably a variable that we might call pain that kind of contributes to the uh, NRS and the VAS score, but do, isn't fully explained by either. And if that's slightly uh, difficult to understand, the other classic kind of latent variable is socioeconomic status, which is both easy to understand, but very difficult to measure. So we use lots of different measures to kind of estimate what that underlying measure is. And that's what factor analysis can help you do. It can try and help you estimate these underlying latent variables. And uh, I mean, since you mentioned it, the kind of difference between exploratory and confirmatory factors analysis is mostly conceptual. So exploratory factor analysis is where you try and find the relationship between the latent variables uh, and the kind of observed variables. Whereas in confirmatory factor analysis, you have an idea of what the model might be, and then you're trying to see if your data fits that. In this particular case, they were using factor analysis to try and kind of establish if there was a single underlying factor for the numerical rating scale and VAS, which we might think of as pain, or whether if there was a second factor, I think we then have to think about whether or not the, what what that might be. Um, interpretability can be hard with these measures, but uh, via their hypothesis, we might think that there might be an effective component to the pain versus a somatic element or uh, kind of various different ideas that we might have about what the two components of the pain are. So so much in there to take away. It really reminds me of a um, paper we published during COVID times about right ventricular failure in COVID patients, which was a latent class analysis, which I guess is quite similar. Uh, but going back to this paper, maybe then it's a case of not picking the best scale for patients, but using the same scale consistently so that in order to compare patients, in order to compare periods um, in time where patients have got pain and they haven't, et cetera, uh, you can't convert from one to the other, but if you're using the same scale consistently, then you're able to um, to make those comparisons. It probably isn't as simple to say that it's impossible to convert between the two. I think the first conclusion should be that it's not what the conversion isn't what we thought it was. It isn't a straightforward mapping. Um, so the first thing to mention is that um, the correlation between the two variables is very well is good to to excellent. Um, so when one number is higher, the other is also likely to be higher. Um, but the difference is in so-called agreement. So that if the value of on the NRS is eight, that doesn't imply a VAS of 80. Um, and so it's not that the two variables aren't measuring the same underlying thing. We think they probably are based on the factor analysis, but that the conversion might not be as straightforward as um, we originally thought. So I agree with your conclusion that perhaps that we should be sticking with one uh, pain scale within the same patients. But that becomes complicated when you then compare between patients or between trials or between cohorts and so on. And then we're going to need to confront this issue again, because with going, people aren't going to all default into using one pain scale uh, because of this paper, unfortunately. <laughs> 
So it, makes, so it makes things simple in one sense, but complicated in another. The second paper that you've chosen is a physiology study, and we don't tend to see much of these in anesthesia because we tend to like very, very clinical papers. Whereas this is a very sort of benchtop physiology study of the potential for using simulated altitude as a means of prehabilitation. And we don't tend to see many studies like this. So why did you find this particularly interesting? So I think there's a few things that make it interesting. I think the first thing to say is that it's an area of huge importance. And I think it's pretty well recognized now that optimizing um, particularly our most comorbid patients preoperatively uh, is important. And we don't know how to do that well yet. But what I particularly liked about this was it was, was the ingenuity of taking an intervention that's common in elite athletes and actually something that um, anaesthetists, at least in theory, should know a lot about because uh, we and we study exercise physiology for our exams. And uh, it's nice that we can take some of that knowledge and an intervention that is used in a different setting and bring it into a new population. Um, so I, that's what caught my eye about it, really. Yeah, I've never heard of such a place before as a, as a hypoxic house, but this is exactly what they used. And, and they were able to convert a living space, which is essentially a um, you know a couple of bedrooms and a living area, et cetera, where you can actually spend a whole week uh, or longer and reduce the FiO2 for participants who are living in that space to 15% gradually. And they were able to then measure how much participants are able to exercise afterwards um, after after essentially training in this hypoxic environment for a whole week. Um, did you pick out any interesting methods or statistics here? Um, this was a mostly straightforward uh, kind of methodological paper. I mean, they did use some fancy statistics, so kind of linear mixed effects models for some of their secondary outcomes. But I think the thing to kind of focus in on is the, uh, uh, well, the most eye-catching result in the paper is a, is a secondary outcome, which is about the increase in hemoglobin in patients who spent a week in the hypoxic house as, as uh, compared to those who were in the kind of control environment. And uh, I think the reason to highlight that methodologically is that uh, it's just keeping things simple and remembering that if you're looking at secondary outcomes and statistical significance, that you have to be cautious about multiple testing and that these are exploratory outcomes. And we shouldn't take this as uh, read that actually uh, a hypoxic house for a week will increase the hemoglobin by as much as this, or whether or not this was just a statistical artifact based on the fact we'd tested multiple outcomes. The other slight methodological facts to highlight was that there was only two weeks. So all the patients, this was a crossover trial, all the patients spent a week in the house at normal oxygen levels and a week in the house at 15% FiO2. Um, but there was only two weeks I believe, between the interventions. So there's a possibility of some residual effects or some washout. Do you think that we'll be putting all our patients in hypoxic houses before their operations? Or do you think that this is just something that's exploratory and something that, in actual fact, explains some of the physiology that under, underpins our practice and, and may be able one day to help our patients in a very different way? Unfortunately, I think it's the latter. As much as I'd love to be setting up a hypoxic house, um, <laughs> there's I don't think the evidence is nearly strong enough for that yet. Um, as I mentioned, the there was evidence for an increase in hemoglobin, which, as we know, is important, but actually other trials like PREVENT showed a larger rise in, H in hemoglobin without having a change in clinical outcomes. So I don't think the hemoglobin rise is anything to get too excited about in the first instance. Um, I also think, I also see this as a bit more of an exploration of a new area. Uh, the authors are very clear that it's 
not obvious what the correct duration of therapy should be for a kind of altitude, a simulated altitude, where, how it should be delivered, when it should be delivered. Um, so this very much is a kind of first foray into new terrain. Um, I think to answer your question simply, no, I don't think we're going to be putting people in hypoxic houses. However, I think it's absolutely possible that with changes in the intervention, you could imagine a different uh, kind of altered version of this, perhaps, um, as the authors mentioned, the possibility of sleeping, sleeping high, as it were, as sleeping in a hypoxic environment, and then spending their days or training low, um, and treating our kind of pre-op patients like Olympic athletes in that sense, uh, might be a more might be a more efficacious strategy in terms of improving their exercise tolerance. And I think there's lots more to explore based on this. The third paper you've chosen is a meta-analysis of nociception level index-guided intraoperative analgesia on early post-operative pain and opioid consumption. And I remember we had a series of articles in the past called review recommendations and I think you and our current editor-in-chief Matt Wiles wrote the guide to meta-analysis which was really great so why did you pick this one in particular and what did you so I I picked this one for a few reasons I think the thing that caught my eye about it again from a methodological perspective I kind of only have one drum to bang here don't I um the uh they they picked up on a really important uh aspect of the meta-analysis which is sometimes underexplored and kind might have big implications which is um the potential for conflicts of interest so I I think there's lots to like about this meta-analysis I know that we have a um a pretty high bar for the systematic reason meta-analyses that we take. And so and there's a reason that this cleared that. So I, I think we could talk a lot about the methods, but um, uh, needless to say, it's, it has good overall uh, methodology. But what I liked in particular was that um, they highlighted that six out of the 10 included studies had the potential of conflicts of interest between authors and the uh, outcomes. And there's some reasonably good meta-epidemiological research, research that's been done in I mean, between uh, clinical fields that shows that uh, having potential conflicts of interest is correlated with having more biased results than eventual kind of uh, meta-analysis results. So this is obviously of concern, given that the majority of the papers have a potential for a conflict of interest. One of the things I quite liked about this paper was that made it very different from previous reviews was the fact that they focused on a single device. We know, for example, in process DEG monitoring research, that different monitors perform differently, and that's great, and that sort of standardizes that arm. But I guess one of the problems here also was that on the variation of what standard care was, because standard care for for these for this intervention was titrating analgesia to things like blood pressure and heart rate, et cetera, which can be very, very variable. And that's compared against a single monitor. So do you think there's any issues with making those comparisons in, in this meta-analysis? I think the truth is I'm I'm not certain about the answer to that. Uh, I think you raise a good question that uh, there is a variability in how uh, kind of standard treatment is with response to kind of with regards to anesthetist uh, titrating analgesia. Um, but I think that probably represents how the clinical reality, which is that people don't have a fixed algorithm in their mind of um, when to give more morphine based on heart rate or blood pressure. So I think it would be difficult to standardize the um, non-intervention arm, given that people do a huge amount of variability, uh, variable things anyway, and then there would be criticism of the control arm based on it being non-representative. I think that's probably not what the problem was here in terms of uh, in terms of in what the results they did find. Um, I think there's some heterogeneity in the clinical scenarios that it 
was uh, kind of undertaken in, but that's also common in meta-analysis. I think probably the, um, the reason that there was a fairly minimal effect being found was that people, well, any experienced anesthetists have a good idea of how painful procedures are. So in this, lots of people have a fixed idea in their mind when they do a list, have done a list multiple times of roughly how much analgesia someone will need. So if perhaps these devices were comparing to no analgesia at all, it would be very obvious that they had they sh- uh, showed a signal for when people had um, required more analgesia. But given that people are experts in uh, things that they do repeatedly, and they know roughly how much analgesia is required, um, I think that explains potential small separation between the two different arms. Have you used these devices before? So personally, I haven't actually. Um, I uh, so I can't say uh, too much about pra- the practicality of using one. Yeah, likewise. And I guess the thing that's always struck me about them is that they might be useful in conjunction with processed EEG monitoring when patients are receiving TIVA. But it probably wouldn't really affect, for example, my anaesthetic much if, um, for example, it's a, a, a VATS thoracic procedure and the analgesia for that will be the um, block that I place at the start of the procedure. And there's very little that I can do to titrate that during the operation. Um, so I guess we need to work out how to use these monitors um, if we're going to use them, because at the moment there's no sort of valid, validated consensus or guidelines on their place in perioperative practice. So certainly I, I think that this will be a paper that will be cited and I think it'll be something that people will find interesting and these monitors may find a place in the future and we'll certainly see some more of these papers. I guess biological plausibility will be the uh, main question that needs to be answered. I'm sure there'll be lots of discussion about that in the future. Well I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you about these papers Paul and i certainly feel like I've understand the content better having spent the time reading them and discussing them with you as well and, and it, there's simply no substitute for uh, reading the full papers. And we always do try to make papers free to access when we're promoting these works. And and we'll be doing that this week for all these free papers. So please do uh, read them and do enjoy the two NAP7 articles as well, which have been released this month. And we've got much more NAP7 papers on the way, but we've also got a 2024 supplement as well, which will be published next month. And we are planning a really good live debate for that. And there'll be more details of that to come. So thank you very much, Paul. And we will see you again next month for the January podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. The Anesthesia Podcast.